Hello, everyone. My name is Addie DeMary, and I am the Community Engagement Coordinator at Sewer Co-op. Welcome to Community Conversations, exploring intersection of racial, social, and food justice. This series is presented by Eastside Co-op, Mississippi Market Co-op, Sewer Co-op, and Twin Cities Co-op Partners as a way to examine and connect our cooperative values with social justice movements. Before we start this evening, we will begin with a land acknowledgement. Minneapolis is located on land that is home to the Dakota people. It is important to acknowledge that this land was colonized by European settlers, but that it continues to hold historical, spiritual, and personal meaning to the Dakota. We want to honor the past, present, and future ties of the Dakota people to the land where Minneapolis now is. Whether we're indigenous people or not, it is important to reflect on the complexity of our ties to the land and our role in moving the arc of history towards justice. This evening, we will have a panel discussion about the feature film, Jim Crow of the North by Daniel Wergen. Jim Crow of the North premiered in 2019 on Twin Cities Public Television. The film focuses on the complex history of racial covenants in Minneapolis and how systematic racism has lasting repercussions on housing inequalities in the Twin Cities today. We hope you had an opportunity to view this film in advance, but if you haven't, you still you will still enjoy an engaging conversation with our gracious panelists. A bit of housekeeping before we begin, our evening will start with remarks from our panelists followed by a Q&A session moderated by Clarence White at Eastside Freedom Library. We will begin with pre-submitted questions and timing permitting, open the floor for more. Our evening will conclude at 8 p.m. With the large amount of attendees in this webinar, you are on mute and your camera is off for the duration of this event. You are welcome to put any comments in the chat box. And when it's time for the Q&A session, please direct any questions for our panelists into the Q&A box. Our featured panelists today are Daniel Bergen, Rebecca Walker, and Mia Ulysses. Daniel Bergen is a filmmaker of Jim Crow the North and the winner of 15 regional Emmys. He has also worked on TP team films such as Out North, Lost Twin Cities, and North Star, Minnesota's Black Pioneers. You can find his works on tpt.org and we will add some of the related works he has done to the chat box for your reference. Welcome, Daniel. Next, we have Rebecca Walker, who's from Mapping Prejudice, an organization of historians, geographers, digital humanists, and community activists. They are seeking to explore structural racism within land ownership to draw attention to the way race has shaped public space in the city. Welcome, Rebecca. And now we have Mia Ulysses, who is a fierce justice advocate and a community connector with roots in Minnesota and Haiti. She is passionate about creating more just systems through policy, food, farming, land access, and natural spaces. Mia has impacted the Twin Cities community throughout her work on policy advocacy, program development, network building, and communications at organizations such as Loaves and Fishes, Worth Co Cooperative Grocery, Appetite for Change, 40 Acres Co-op, and Wilder Foundation. She has an advanced local, state, and federal food policy efforts, including the establishment and funding of the Urban Agriculture Grant Program 
by the Minnesota legislature, one of the first urban agriculture specific state funded grant programs in the country. Mia is the principal of Rooted Solutions, a, solu a consulting firm that offers facilitation, program development, and strategic planning services to clients who will like a fresh approach to their work. Our, our panelists will each have 15 minutes to talk about their work, after which we will move to a Q&A. I am going to now turn over panelists' introduction to Clarence from Eastside Freedom Library. Clarence, before you begin, would you like to tell us a little bit about Eastside Freedom Library and the work that you do? Uh, thanks, Addie. Uh, welcome, everyone, to the Eastside Freedom Library. Um, the Eastside Freedom Library does a lot of work uh, holding difficult conversations uh, in the hopes of building solidarity and justice um, for our community and, and the rest of the world. Um, over the past couple of years, the Eastside Freedom Library has held a series of events around housing justice, and we have created a, a, a housing justice program here at the library. Uh, we ran a series that uh, began uh, by the urging of ABC Realty, which is a boutique realty here on the east side, run by CN Thomas, who wanted to uh, have conversations examining the disparity in home ownership uh, that was uh, very apparently uh, different between uh, people of color, African Americans, and indigenous people, and, and white people. We have a very high home ownership rate among white people here in Minnesota. It is about a third of that for African Americans. Um, that led us to hold several more events, uh, several more panels, one of them including a screening of Jim Crow of the North, uh, and uh, Daniel Bergen was very good to join us for that along with other people. We have had such a response to that that we have continued the series even virtually. You can watch our website, our events page, as well as our um, <clears throat> Facebook page to see more on that or visit our YouTube channel to see past events in that series. Uh, the, the conversations we have here bring in a, the greatest diversity of voices. Um, we consider this place with over, almost 25,000 books as a place that holds a lot of knowledge, but it is also a place where a lot of knowledge is created and presented because uh, so many of the books are gatekept by a dominant culture and a dominant narrative. And we are doing our best to present a more rounded narrative, which is why uh, we wanna have this very important conversation um, following the message of, of a very important film that tells one of the truths that is a dynamic piece of why the society we live in looks the way it does. Um, I wanted to mention a, a few upcoming events. Um, on the 22nd of February at seven o'clock, uh, we are hosting along uh, with on stage uh, an event called The Most Beautiful Home, uh, maybe presentation and discussion. It, we will have uh, Maria Asp, Austin Van, and Jane 
Froyland, who will be reading part of a play that is upcoming and, and having a discussion around it. Um, it's one of the things that we do. We partner with a lot of artists and arts makers who are having really uh, crucial uh, conversations and, and telling the truth around important issues. Uh, so that is going to be at seven o'clock again on February 22nd. Um, and it is, I think, a good example of how we have discussions that create change in our society and, um, and bring more people into a more rounded narrative of our, our spaces. Uh, the next day on the 23rd, we will be hosting a program with civil rights activist Josie Johnson uh, talking about her book, Hope in the Struggle. She'll be in conversation with Tish Jones. Um, I think a lot of people will really appreciate that. And I think a lot of the conversation will cover a lot of the ground that, that we're covering in this conversation tonight and that is covered in, in the film, Jim Crow of the North. So um, with that, uh, I hope that we can uh, get our conversation started. I'm so happy that we have our guests. Um, it's good to see you again, uh, Daniel. And um, I, I, I'm sure everyone is going to appreciate uh, what, you, what you have to share with us today. So if you wanna get this conversation uh, kicked off, we are ready and happy to hear. Well, thank you, Clarence. It's good to see you again. I'm sorry we can't be there um, together. The Eastside Freedom Library is a real, uh, a real gem, uh, a jewel, and a great gathering place. And so I, I really encourage everyone to support, attend, um, and hopefully attend in real life um, at the Eastside Freedom Library. Um, way over on the east side, I'm coming to you from the south side. I'm uh, here in South Minneapolis. I'm a south sider born and raised. I'm, you know, a couple blocks from George Floyd Square. Um, but, you know, the, this one of the things of this conversation tonight is, is about um, the power of place. So whether it's a dope um, activist library, um, you know, an important um, gathering place around food and food justice, like our co-ops. Um, it, it, I really think that idea of power of place is a theme that, that runs through um, and will run through this conversation. Jim Crow of the North, um, of course, looks at um, the kind of the hidden history and some of the dark history of uh, restrictive covenants, and in this case in Hennepin County. Um, and it was an important film, and I, I do hope folks have been able to watch it. If you haven't, um, as Addie said, you know, definitely check it out. We'll, we'll touch on a lot of the themes here in our conversation um, to, tonight. But you know, just really this idea of learning about the roots of systemic racism and how we got to now, and how Minnesota has some of the worst wealth and health uh, disparities in the nation. You know, this is one of the key um, elements to understanding that is to, to look back into our past and see how in this case, the restrictive covenants embedded in, in um, real estate and housing and land development um, a century ago led to the red lines um, that led to so many of the other um, forms of oppression and white supremacy that followed that created um, some of the disparities we see today um, despite that, you know, uh, we uh, persist and, you know, that was important for me in the film, uh, Jim Crow of the North, to, to also talk about, you know, from a strength-based place, um, the Black communities and how, how we do. Um, 
so you know, I'm in I'm in the basement, so I'm around my stuff, and so I, I did want to share that you know I've got my Gordon Parks um, Life magazine, uh, one of his more important photo essays on the Fontenelle family, and I think about the themes uh, tonight and this idea of food justice and you know kind of the effects of poverty and white supremacy and this kind of a low-fi version of like one of my documentaries where I just show you the photos, but um, but really the idea of Gordon Parks the master photographer and, um, you know, he wouldn't call himself this maybe, but activist artist is really where um, I get my kind of motivation, um, what informs me in terms of um, my films and my work with Twin Cities PBS um, is really, you know, in a way that old um, journalist adage, um, you know, that our work is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And so Jim Crow of the North is um, a case in point. So. Um, a really important film that has been, you know, as Clarence mentioned, really its life began after it was on the air and online. And, and I think for my colleagues and myself at Twin Cities PBS, and if I can speak for the Mapping Prejudice team, just the life it's had in community has been um, really powerful and important and, um, and it continues. And so we're really, we were thrilled that it was um, a part of this amazing housing justice movement that's happening um, housed in the Eastside Freedom Library and in the community in St. Paul. I was gonna share my screen, so uh, forgive me for the, the, the brief technical clunkiness. Um, let's see here. I wanted to um, just share a little bit about um, Jim Crow of the North and its impact. And if uh, someone, Clarence, if you could just give me a holler if you're seeing um, food justice on, on the screen. Are you I am there? seeing that. Right on. Um, yeah. Cool. So, um, you know, Jim Crow of the North, of course, was um, an important film. Let me just back this up real quick. And I want to kind of allude to some of my other work, but but with Jim Crow of the North, it's an important film and broadcast, and it lives online. But it really, um, right away, even at its premiere, um, uh, here with Dr. Delagarde and myself at the U of M during its premiere in uh, February of 2019, we saw you know that power of conversation, of um, learning, of gathering around the narrative, and then you know hopefully tipping that into action. And so this was the first of what now have been dozens and dozens of screenings and convenings and conversations in a range of settings, you know, from church basements to uh, community centers, uh, and really just that idea of of using this narrative and, and highlighting this history as a way for us to talk about um, the issues uh, today and in the past. So it's been really um, powerful and, and I hope a useful tool. Uh, one notable screening was in Linden Hills um, in the park. You know, this is the really the seat of the, um, the restrictive covenants in Minneapolis, but it was a jam packed sweltering park house on a summer day where it was standing room only and, and folks came from all over the north side and elsewhere to kind of gather, talk about the issues of the film and, and again, really look for action and solution and, and next step. So really um, uh, important. And you know we've gotten a lot of feedback at Twin Cities PBS, and, and I know my friends at Mapping Prejudice have as well about you know how this narrative, built on this um, stunning research and the kind of irrefutable power of this data about the impacts of uh, systemic racism on on our communities, has um, continued to to live on. 
one way it showed up that was was powerful was a uh, bipartisan legislation, um, you know, spurred on by the Mapping Prejudice uh, crew and their allies, and I think also kind of sparked by the film um, to allow people to expunge uh, racist covenants, restrictive covenants from their property deeds. Um, you know, just one, you know, kind of um, a gesture, a bit of action. But since then, you know, from what I understand, and it's kind of cool because the viral nature of the film means for the Mapping Prejudice and, and my, my colleagues at TPT will hear about these different uses of it. And it seems to be on regular rotation at the legislature um, with different committees who are really looking hard at um, policy and planning about equity, uh, reparations, uh, my word, I don't know that they'd say that at the Capitol, um, but it's, it, it's meant a lot that it has that role and it's been playing that role. You know, in, in my decades with Twin Cities PBS, I've done a range of productions and, and projects on a range of issues of concern in our communities. And really my last non-history documentary, because now I'm as an executive producer focused on history, was a, a powerful film uh, for me to create called Food Justice that we did in association with St. Paul, uh, City of St. Paul and Ramsey County Public Health to really look at how we can make uh, uh, our food support systems more equitable. And as a you know food stamp kid and remembering the government cheese, you know I'm a part of that lineage and legacy of of food support. And so it was really cool to put a face on um, on um, food insecurity uh, and also kind of celebrate a lot of the great ways community takes care of itself and mutual aid. But also to say you know we need to make sure that there's healthy food in those systems. I wanted to just talk a little bit about, you know, if you've seen the film, you'll recognize this familiar image of the uh, the, the red line map, um, the FHA kind of outline of how they saw value in our communities. Of course, here's South Minneapolis. Um, there's my um, home park, Powderhorn Park, where I grew up across the street from. Uh, and you see a lot of the, the blue areas. And, and then you see the familiar red um, down Fourth Avenue. And I was thinking about this conversation and a lot of the great work a lot of you all do in the co-op world. And you know, 38th and 4th, of course, is the historic intersection for the South Side's Black community. There was, a, there was a lot of businesses there at one time, including a grocery store that you'll hear about when you talk uh, to elders was thinking about co-ops and just quickly kind of poked around and uh, got, you know, identified a few of the Southside co-ops that I think at this point in the late 70s, uh, you would see in South Minneapolis. There was also the Northside co-op um, West Broadway. Uh, and you know, so you see these are really kind of in the heart of the community, um, including the Bryant co-op on Fourth Avenue where Gary Cunningham and others you know, had a real culturally um, uh, focused co-op space. But now many of the, those are all gone, um, other than Linden Hills, of course, is still there. And, you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm not the mapping prejudice scholar, but it's no coincidence that it certainly spent most of its life in solidly in the green line space in the heart of the restrictive covenants in Southwest Minneapolis. I think it's moved even further west towards like Edina, um, but uh, just thought I would share that as just kind of a, in a way, you know, for this conversation about um, food justice and the role of the co-ops, just that idea that there once were more in our communities. And then, um, of course, I love to have the friendship store in our neighborhood, and that's its own story, and I'm glad we got folks who can talk about that. Uh, my family are members, but um, it's uh, just interesting how, how things have changed. And then lastly, on the co-op front, <clears throat> excuse me, I did want to mention that um, some 
awesome uh, folks and friends of mine are producing an amazing film uh, that I can't wait for you all to see called The Co-op Wars. And it really gets into a lot of the intricacies and the politics and the straight up throwdowns that were happening um, in the co-op movement in its early years. It's a fascinating uh, documentary uh, that I think will be a really powerful conversation piece. Um, and we'll be broadcasting it. It's, they're still finishing it, but we're, we're in conversation and I'm excited uh, to bring that to you uh, through TPT. But, but they're also doing um, community screenings. And if you check out their website, you know, they're trying to organize conversations, special screenings with the film uh, to talk about a lot of the issues that we'll be talking about today as well. So I appreciate the work they're doing. And I think it'll be, you know, maybe as part of this series, even a good way to keep this conversation going. All right, I'm gonna stop sharing my screen and I think I'll, uh, I'll leave it at that. Look forward to the conversation. Uh, thank you, Daniel. Uh, we really appreciate the, the added information and I know it, it grows and gets updated every day. Um, with that, I think we will pass it on to Rebecca to talk about the Mapping Prejudice Project. Okay, um, thanks, and I'll share my screen as well. Um, hold on just a second. Um, so my name is Rebecca Walker, and uh, I am a researcher with the Mapping Prejudice Project. Full disclosure, I'm a new addition to the Mapping Prejudice Project, so I joined the research team at some point in the last year. It's kind of hard to say when I officially became part. Um, and uh, I, I'm a student at the University of Minnesota, and um, and my background is in environmental science. Um, I, I study ecology, or I did, um, and and over time, I um, I got involved with the Mapping Prejudice Project uh, as I was studying urban environments and, and trying to understand some of the disparities we see um, in environments in Minneapolis today. Um, and so I'm going to talk a little bit about that work because one, I think it's important in its own right, and two, I think it 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 helps us understand a little bit more about uh, covenants not only shaped where people live, they, um, we, we talk a lot in Mapping Prejudice about how covenants establish this landscape of structural racism um, and, and looking at the way in which uh, covenants shaped investments in our environment in Minneapolis in particular um, can really show us a little bit about like what it means for racism to become institutionalized in this way. Um, and so just to start us off and, and maybe put us in conversation with the events of this summer. Um, so the Mapping Prejudice Project started in 2016 and um, have given hundreds of presentations somewhat like this, where they're talking about their research on covenants. And um, in each presentation, they would say, uh, Minneapolis has some of the highest disparities um, along racial lines in the country. And this isn't just unjust, it's unsustainable. And eventually our community is going to reach a tipping point. Um, and this summer with the murder of George Floyd, I, I think we saw our community um, really reaching that tipping point. Uh, and the protests that began at the intersection of 38th and Chicago, um, they spread around our city and, and the Twin Cities and, and across the entire country. Um, and and became the largest protest in American history with more than 20 million Americans marching um, in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and, and in the wake of these events, Mapping Prejudice was increasingly called on to, to answer the question, why Minneapolis, why did this happen here? Um, and what, what should we know about Minneapolis? And, 
and so covenants are one part of that story. Um, and and we'll talk a little bit about um, how covenants really shaped this broader landscape of structural racism in Minneapolis. Um, and so some statistics that uh, that Dan has already alluded to, and so I won't I won't um, beat this into the bush too hard, but um, but the Twin Cities have some of the largest gaps uh, between blacks and white um, and white people in, in terms of homeownership. Um, there's a 50% gap with about 70, 75% of white people owning their own homes while only 23% of black people own their own homes. Um, and that makes us the worst in the country uh, out of 102 of the largest metros in the country. Um, similarly, so housing affects of everything else. It affects the schools you have access to. It affects the grocery stores you can shop at. Um, it, it affects the air you're breathing. Um, and so we see these disparities um, in other metrics. So in our educational equity index, uh, we rank 97th out of 100. Um, and so these disparities are far reaching. Uh, and um, sorry, and to understand these, uh, covenants provided provide a window for understanding where they came from um and so over the course of our research as we've given these presentations one thing that we've wanted to say again and again is that these disparities aren't the outcome of some like natural order um these disparities were produced uh, actively um through structural racism um and and as we know through um everybody who's watched uh jim crow of the north um racial covenants, uh, there are these clauses that were that were included into deeds um, that that prevented the sale of a home to to anybody but a white person. And so they were first used in Minneapolis in 1910. Um, here we see the language from from one of these racial covenants and it says uh, the party or second part hereby agrees that the premises um, hereby occupied shall not at any time be conveyed, mortgaged, or leased to any person or persons of Chinese, Japanese, Moorish, Turkish, Negro, Mongolian, or African blood or descent, uh, and said restrictions and covenants shall run, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and you see sort of this like archaic racial language, um, and, and, it, and it sounds, um, one, obviously like very racist, uh, and, um, and, and also just like so foreign to see, to see this language here. Um, and and these these were included in deeds. Um, and so here are a few more. Uh, no person of any race other than the Aryan race shall use or occupy any building or any lot. Um, the said premises shall not at any time be sold, conveyed, leased, or sublet, or occupied by any person or persons who are not full bloods of the so-called Caucasian or white race. Um, no person of any race other than the Caucasian race shall use or occupy any building or any lot except that this covenant shall not, not prevent occupancy by domestic servants of a different race domiciled with an owner or tenant. Um, and the language here is, uh, it's upsetting. It's, it's um, you can feel the violence of the racism of this period in this language. Um, and I, I wanted just to read them out loud as part of this conversation. Um, because in America, we, we have a habit of, of using euphemisms to talk about race, um, or, or avoiding the subject, uh, or using, um, you know, colorblind language, uh, but ignoring racism 
isn't going to fix it. It's not going to make it not exist. And so part of the work of the Mapping Prejudice Project has been, um, has been to confront this racism um, and to confront this racist history. Uh, and so, um, and so as part of our work, uh, we've been working with, with the community uh, to map these covenants. Um, and, and so covenants, they've been in our, we've known that they exist, but, but our understanding of, of sort of where they were or how they were used um, has really been lacking uh, because until the Mapping Prejudice Project, there hasn't been a map of racial covenants for any city in America. Um, so this was the first one uh, that really showed where these covenants were located, um, who put them there, for how long, um, how much land did they cover. Uh, and, and to make this map, we worked directly with community. So we had over 3,000 volunteers uh, read covenants to make the Hennepin County map. Um, and uh, we had to search, we had computers search through millions and millions of property deeds. Um, and then from those, they identified ones with potentially racist language. Um, our 3,000 volunteers then read uh, um, 177,000 of those historic deeds. Um, and of those, they identified 24,000 that had a racial covenant in them. Um, and so here we can, we can see the results of all of that work. Um, so what you're seeing, each of those blue dots represents the spread of covenants throughout Hennepin County. Um, and uh, each of those dots represents space that was for the exclusive use of white people. Um, and no one, and so as I said already, this is the first comprehensive map that has been created for, um, for a city or a metro area in the country. Um, and so, and so the text I read out loud shows that covenants um, were racist, uh, were quite violent, um, and this map shows you how widespread they were. Uh, and I also want to 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 talk a bit about how powerful they were. Um, so covenants ran with the land; they weren't attached to uh, to the person who enacted the covenant. Um, but but instead stayed with the property. So even after uh, that property was sold to the next occupant, um, the covenant was still in effect. Uh, and it didn't matter how many times the property changed hands or what um, structures were built on the covenant or on, built on the property. Um, the the restrictions remained. Um, and and even after um, and so if at any point the the covenant was breached. Um, the property would return back to the hands of the original owner uh, or the person who originally enacted the racial covenant. Um, and so these effects were long lasting uh, and, um, and were really hard to remove once enacted. Um, and, and, and what's also important to hit is that, um, oh boy, oh geez, okay, sorry is that these covenants were really popular. Um, they were used by real estate agents as a selling feature to, to, to tout, um, come move to this property, uh, your, your investment will be protected. Uh, and, and, and so they were really popular among white people. They, they wanted these covenants. Um, and, and so in contrast, um, for black people, they were, they were a mark that the space was uh, was unwelcome to them, was actively hostile to them, um, and 
And it was only through the work of black activists uh, in Minneapolis and around the country um, that covenants were ultimately overturned. Um, and so eventually through a series of court decisions, starting with Shelley v. Kramer um, in 1948, and then ultimately the Fair Housing Act of 1968, covenants were made unenforceable. Um, so I've talked a lot about, about sort of how covenants came to be um, and what they did, but, but then there's this question of, but how did covenants actually shape the landscape um, beyond just where people live? Uh, did, how did they shape the environment? How did they shape um, public education? How did they shape uh, where libraries went? Um, and, and so covenants were like this mechanism through which what was previously a relatively integrated urban landscape became segregated. Um, and, and black residents were increasingly pushed into uh, just a handful of neighborhoods. Um, and, and then these exclusive white neighborhoods um, became spaces of concentrated privilege. Um, and, and while I'm talking about Minneapolis, this, this story isn't unique to Minneapolis. This was happening all over the country. Um, and what I'm alluding to here, to here is structural racism. Um, and what does it mean for racism to be structural? Um, well, what we now that we have the covenants map, we can start to answer this question by looking at the way in which covenants shaped um, a, a whole range of systems. And, and so I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the effect of covenants uh, on, our, on our park system in Minneapolis. Um, and so, uh, so Minneapolis, um, is, is known for having um, a, a nationally award-winning park system. Um, and, but, but one question, oh gosh, okay. <laughs> but one question that we, we've been wanting, that the Mapping Prejudice team is curious about is the way in which covenants shaped um, where investments in those parks were made and how that system evolved over time. Um, and so to, to answer this question, I'll, I'll share a few examples uh, from our research to highlight what we've been finding. Um, so, so first is, is this, uh, this is a plot um, from a development that, that had racial covenants. Um, the, the land was developed by Edmund Walton um, and he, he was the first person to enact racially restrictive covenants in Minneapolis. Um, and, and Edmund Walton developed this land and it's near Lake of the Isles um, and included in this development, um, you can see uh, lot five here, uh, was was basically a swamp, um, and it was it was muggy, it was bug ridden, um, it was swampy. You couldn't build a house there, uh, and it and it made this development quite undesirable. Um, but Edmund Walton had a plan for that. Um, so just uh, just a year prior, um, Minneapolis's Park Board had built uh, had built a canal that connects Lake of the Isles to Lake Calhoun. Um, and this was met with huge fanfare. Uh, they had a giant civic celebration where hundreds and hundreds of people came to celebrate the linking of the lakes. Um, and, and this was quite a big deal for the city. Uh, and, and there was also quite a lot of excitement about how this new canal was, was drumming up interest in the real estate market in this neighborhood. Um, and so Edmund Walton saw an opportunity, uh, and you can see here the canal zone lots are much in demand. Um, Lake of the Isles district, um, they are saying it's not checked by May winter weather, uh, which I, I think we can relate to the winters that drag on into May. 
Um, but not even a terrible May snowstorm can deter people from coming to buy properties in this new canal neighborhood. Um, and so Edmund Walton sees an opportunity. And what he does is take this swampy piece of land uh, and say, hey, Park Board, how about you build a canal here too? Um, and if, you, if you're familiar at all with Minneapolis's geography, you know that, uh, that between, um, that there's a canal that runs from Lake of the Isles also to Cedar Lake. Um, and so Walton donated this piece of land to the park board uh, and, um, and they did it, they built a canal. Uh, so I, you can see I've um, highlighted in this advertisement that was in the newspaper just a few years later uh, where the new canal between Lake of the Isles and Cedar Lake has been constructed. Um, and, and Edwin Walton is talking about uh, come get in on this Lake of the Isles bargain. Um, you take advantage of this beautiful natural amenity. And then if you, if you look down at the ad, you also see um, he's advertising another amenity and that is the racially restrictive language that, um, that is included in the property deeds. Uh, and so um, these environmental amenities through park spaces were used in tandem with covenants to increase the value um, in neighborhoods and and we know now today that uh, the neighborhood around Lake of the Isles is one of the most expensive neighborhoods um, in the Twin Cities. Uh, and so the strategy was effective and other real estate agents caught on. Um, so this is at, uh, along Minnehaha Creek. Um, so Samuel Thorpe, the, through the Thorpe Brothers Company, developed this property uh, and they put blanket racially restrictive covenants on every lot um, in this development. And um, and this was the first time blanket covenants were enacted in this way in Minneapolis. Um, and just a few years after that, um, Thorpe donated 49 lots that were, uh, 49 of the lots that ran right along Minnehaha Creek to the board. Um, he received $1 from the park board for those lots. Uh, and the park board built new parkland running along Minnehaha Creek, which is as, as many of us who live in Minneapolis have enjoyed that parkland very much. Um, and, and he did this to increase the value of the remaining properties that, that now lined this new park amenity. Um, here you can see developers getting pretty brazen in their collaborations with the park board. So this is Diamond Lake Terrace. Uh, each property in this development had a racially restrictive covenant on it. Um, and you can see uh, this blob here is what became Todd Park and they were including their donation to the park board directly um, in, their, in their map of the original development. Uh, so they, without even asking the park board, they're saying this will now be a park. Um, and, and I've outlined that development here in this map and you can see today uh, the area that they had designated as a park has become Todd Park. And, um, all of the properties surrounding that park had a racially restrictive covenant. And, and what this did in effect, um, so we've traced this history or this happening in dozens of parks in Minneapolis. Um, so it's not just this three, these three, it happened all over the city. Um, basically anywhere there was a covenant, uh, they were also influencing investments in green space nearby. Um, and this created a de facto Jim Crow system and our park system where some parks, um, many of the nicest environmental amenities in Minneapolis were for the exclusive use of white people. Um, and, and this shows us a little bit about how racism, racism in Minneapolis became institutionalized. Once that happened, uh, these amenities are on our landscape. Um, they're not going anywhere. Now we have this park system and also the neighborhoods that, um, 
that had racially restrictive covenants are still today largely very white. Um, and, and so this has long lasting effects. So um, here you can see a series of maps. The map on the far left shows um, racial demographics in Minneapolis um, with uh, lighter colors representing majority white neighborhoods and the lightest colors around the lakes and around Minnehaha Creek are, are upwards of 90% white. Um, and, and then the, the four remaining maps moving left, you have tree canopy cover, you have air quality, you have total park acreage, you have relative temperature. Um, and you can see that, that all of these maps follow the same patterns with, um, with the most tree canopy cover and the best air quality and the most park acreage and the lowest temperatures um, being in these neighborhoods that, that were made exclusively white through covenants. Um, and, and so through this, um, we see our landscape of environmental inequality developing in Minneapolis. Uh, and, and we see this, this hoarding of environmental privilege in these exclusively white neighborhoods. Um, and so that leads to the question, what do we do? How do we fix this? Um, and so part of this, um, Part of this is continuing this work and, and building maps for other places beyond Minneapolis. Um, so currently uh, the Mapping Prejudice team is working on developing a map for Ramsey County. So that's the county that St. Paul is located in. Um, and, and one way, if you wanna get involved, if you wanna help, um, you can help. Uh, so we'll share the link to the Mapping Prejudice website and we're looking for volunteers to help make the same map, the same kind of map for Ramsey County. Um, and, and so you can go to our Zooniverse site and then you too can read through the language of these, um, of these deeds and identify, uh, identify the deeds with restrictive covenants. Um, beyond creating these maps, it's not enough just, just to know the history. We also have to have the history guide what we do now. Um, and so if we've learned anything from, from the work of Mapping Prejudice and from the covenants maps, um, housing matters. Uh, and so, um, and so really following the leadership of activists of color, particularly housing justice, justice activists of color, um, will, will help us confront some of these disparities. Um, so the Alliance um, is, is a housing justice group and they have put forth this equity in place policy agenda um, that's really aimed at increasing access to housing um, and, and um, and ensuring that um, that that people have access to affordable housing and that aren't that they aren't displaced through gentrification, um, and 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 so what we're really talking about here is reparations, um, and this this can happen systematically. This can happen um, through how we invest in communities and ensure that those communities are able to stay in place and enjoy those investments. And and if and. And I close with the with pictures from the summer just just to point to the fact that that if we don't if we don't make these investments then then these are the alternatives we're faced with um, and and so I encourage everyone to get involved um, and learn more and and maybe help make some maps um, and think about what you can do to to confront these systems and that's it I'll I'll stop talking and turn it over to our other panelists. Uh, thanks, Rebecca. Uh, um, great additional information and, and, and thanks. And the ways to get involved will, as a reminder, will be shared with, with everyone. Um, because I know people have asked 
uh, how they can get involved and also what's happening in Ramsey County in St. Paul. Um, our final speaker, uh, Mia, will talk about uh, the food system and food activism and how that relates to this housing discussion. So uh, Mia, take it away. All right, thanks Clarence. Hi everybody, my name is Mia Ulissi. I'm going to be talking about the connection between food justice and housing justice here in the Twin Cities. Let me pull up my presentation. All right. Awesome. So I, I love that there are so many points of intersection between what Rebecca and Dan had talked about already. And I think it's very interesting to see information data from a geographic perspective because it's kind of like the proof from a food perspective, the proof is in the pudding. It shows us how uh, our society has shifted or changed, how we see concentrated areas of oppression um, that are due to institutional racism, due to uh, community-led oppression and systems of um, discrimination. And so I'll get a little bit into that. And I have a couple maps to share to add on to Rebecca's and Dan's as well. But hopefully you will be able to leave this session with the three of us today learning a little bit and knowing a little bit more about how you can contribute locally to fighting against food justice and housing discrimination. A little bit about me first, just so that you know who I am, because I'm assuming that the 200 people on this call probably don't know who I am. My name is Mia Ulissi, and I am born and raised in the Twin Cities. Like Dan said, I'm a, a food stamp baby, a WIC baby. Uh, housing is very close to my heart just because I, uh, by the time I reached adulthood, have moved over 16 times within the Twin Cities area and have really personally experienced that connection between uh, housing justice and food and access. I was born to Two beautiful parents, as you can see. My dad is uh, an immigrant from Haiti and came to the United States when he was young. Met my mother in Minnesota. She's born and raised here in East Bethel up north. And they had me in addition to some other siblings. And I remember just having very different experiences and polarized experiences around food growing up. I would help my mom in the garden wherever we lived. And you know, every time we moved, we would try to have some kind of garden picking cucumbers, raspberries, um, planting rhubarb. And then I also had this experience of going to the, uh, the WIC office and utilizing food stamps and WIC coupons at the farmer's market downtown Minneapolis and biking to the grocery store in Brooklyn Park because our car was out of order. And so really having two different perspectives around food that still, uh, for some reason, developed this like love and passion for eating food, for cooking food, for growing food. As you can see, I, I love to eat it. I love to cook it. It's been in my blood since I, I was a baby and has really led me up to this journey of really understanding how all of these different pieces of our lives aren't segmented, but they're actually interconnected. And that's why when Rebecca shows you those maps of the city of Minneapolis and you see environmental pollution and you see uh, population density around BIPOC representation, and you see income and food access, all those are layered on and you see that the same exact areas are being affected time and time again. A lot of my work has been around advancing urban agriculture efforts in the Twin Cities, working with grocery cooperatives, farming cooperatives, nonprofits across the state 
to help advance their efforts to build out their programs and to also advance policy efforts at the local, state, and federal level around making sure that urban agriculture has representation from black and brown communities, making sure that we have those who are working to build their farm operations that are teaching youth how to grow food up at the Capitol, advocating for the changes that they want to see, which has led me to create my consulting business, which is called Rooted Solutions, uh, ironically enough. And I do a lot of work uh, with nonprofits and co-ops across the state to help develop and create a strategic plan for the work that they want to do. So all of these things are, uh, as we've kind of discovered through the doc documentary, through the conversations we've had already tonight, interconnected. Uh, this is a form of systemic oppression. Like Rebecca said, it is not something that just descended out of the sky. This is human made and it stems back to the very genesis of our country. If you look at the redlining map, which this was a part of the documentary that you have all seen to prepare for this event today, uh, you see that the closest areas to the, the hyper point of downtown Minneapolis uh, have been deemed as hazardous, definitely declining. And then as you move out to the outskirts where you see less developed land, that's where you have them uh, labeled as best or still desirable. A lot of that has to do with the environmental waste and pollution that was taking place off of the river um, and our source of economy at that time and the populations that were housed most closely to those areas of downtown Minneapolis. This is a map of Minneapolis um, taken from USDA census data from 2015. And um, these are areas that are designated as food deserts. And while I'm not super keen on the term food desert, uh, I will use the information that we have right now to just demonstrate and, and show that the very same map areas that were designated as hazardous the very same areas that we see to this day are designated as opportunity zones, as environmental justice zones, as green zones, are the same exact areas that we see have high uh, population density around food access and food insecurity. So when I think about this, especially like from my lived experience, from the experience that I have working with people in community, a lot of this is really chalked up to economic mobility and economic mobility uh, as a vehicle, not just around income and not just about how much money you have, but around wealth, around land access, around land tenure. And those are common themes that you also see in the housing world around land. And ultimately this is about the quality of life for you and your future lineage. If you look at uh, studies around generational wealth, it's absolutely, <laughs> it's absolutely disgusting to see that the median net worth of black households in 2016 was $15,000 compared to 140,000 for white families. That's literally a 10th of what we see for white families. And this is about like the perpetuation of that cycle of survival, uh, working in nonprofit space, working in program development. You see so many people and people like, even like, the, like my family growing up where you're choosing between paying your rent and buying groceries. You're choosing between buying groceries and paying your light bill. You're choosing between your light bill and your water bill. Uh, and so it's not as easy as just saying, well, if everybody just shopped at the co-op and participated in the Lyme program and you know, utilized the economic assistance, then everybody would be able to have good quality food that's locally sourced. It's not that easy, right? Because you're trying to survive. Maybe you're working two or three jobs. Maybe you don't have adequate access to transportation. Not everybody who is food insecure or faces housing discrimination lives in Minneapolis and St. Paul proper. 
And so as you get into the outskirts of the suburbs, the first ring suburbs, you start to find a lot of issues around transportation and access to food. Um, you see discrimination and rental housing. I have been subject to discrimination and rental housing. I can count on so many fingers how many friends I have where they've gone to see a place, loved it, and they showed up and you know, they're going through group showings because that's what they do now. And they're facing discrimination. People are saying, oh, you know, are, we just got an application in, but then they hear someone showing the same place to someone else and they're saying that it's available. And so even to this day, you see a lot of those like undertones and themes around discrimination within the state of Minnesota. And then the biggest piece is really around inequitable neighborhood investment. Uh, this goes into, you know, the, the map that we saw that uh, Rebecca had pointed out around, you know, how is the city and our state and our federal government investing in housing in certain areas? Where are the grocery stores? Uh, are there access to good quality schools? Are they properly funded? And that connection between food and housing has really started at the beginning in the genesis of our country where Manifest Destiny was interpreted as this un inevitable religious pilgrimage to conquer the land, the slashing and burning of indigenous crops and the genocide of bison and buffalo for money and for sport. And really this idea that if you can weaken somebody's immune system, if you can take away their ability to sustain their life, and on top of that, if you can take away the very place that they call home, that in itself is a recipe for colonization and imperialism. You see, that it happening in modern day practices, whether it's through um, discriminatory lending practices for black farmers, whether it's for um, mortgage lending to BIPOC people who are trying to build their own generational wealth, whether people are trying to uplift their businesses. Uh, it's absolutely rampant. And my mother has worked in the commercial and the residential lending industry for over 20 years. And it's just really shocking to hear the stories that she tells me about clients that come to her that have uh, a business plan that want to buy a commercial property, they happen to be black, or maybe it happens to be in a historically black neighborhood. And for some reason, the lender generally finds a reason not to fund it. The Pigford Settlement is the largest civil, um, cival action class lawsuit in the country in its history. And it was centered around black farmers and discrimination from the USDA, which you find as a main theme in this country's history around Black farmers and Black Americans just in general finding that they're facing discrimination from federal lending agencies, from private banks, private lending agencies, real estate, landlords. Even to this day, Black applicants are denied for initial mortgages at a rate 80% higher than their white counterparts. Even when they already have their home and they're looking to refinance, they're two times more likely to be denied. And then when they're getting to the point where they want to sell their house, uh, it's been shown, and there are a lot of articles that have been in the news the last couple of years around people seeing lower appraisal values just because they have pictures of their black families or their brown families in their house. And when the appraiser comes to evaluate their home, um, their house is appraised at a much lower value than those that are around the other area. And when this ties into food, most lenders don't actually fund farms, restaurants, food trucks, grocery stores. And so they either have to result to their own personal savings angel investors, and then the occasional food or farming focused lending program that on, that on top of that may not necessarily be equipped to understand the history and the biases around Black and Indigenous people in this country. I love talking about modern day food apartheid. I think that it really encapsulates a stronger essence of what we are experiencing in this country than just saying that something happens to be a food desert. 
And much like redlining and other systems of oppression, it's a human created system that goes hand in hand with redlining. And in some ways it's a form of, of food redlining to uproot um, and highlight white supremacy and classism. You see this where um, in cases of classified food deserts, oftentimes corporations will go in, they'll do a field analysis and they'll look at the zip code, they'll look at income rates, they'll look at racial and ethnic demographics, crime rates, home ownership rates, and they'll make their own determination of whether this seems to be a worthy uh, neighborhood to put their business. And that's why historically, so many areas and zip codes and communities and neighborhoods that are historically black and brown, that historically have been classified as food deserts, have a very hard time keeping and retaining food business industries because a lot of it is based off of um, racist and classist uh, metrics. Even with the school lunch programs that we see in the Twin Cities and the difference in terms of funding, a lot of inequities in terms of how schools are funded, how schools and even in the same district are funded and school lunch shaming and the stigmas around free and reduced lunch that still persist to this day. I remember I went to Earl Brown Elementary School in Brooklyn Center and I remember there was one day where I wasn't able to afford my lunch and they actually made me stay back from recess and I couldn't go outside and play with my friends and I had to clean the lunchroom because I couldn't afford as a child my school lunch. And then finally farming is such a huge industry that we're trying to find ways to diversify. There are so many amazing BIPOC farmers that are really trying to break into this industry and have been trying to fight for their place in this world for generations. And in Minnesota alone, over 99%, so 99% y'all of farm owner operators are white. And that leaves literally 1% for every other demographic and ethnicity and culture that is not predominantly white in the state of Minnesota to identify as a farmer owner and operator. A lot of the barriers that farmers uh, have around being able to operate a successful business are tied into the same things that you see in the food access world as a consumer, as somebody who's looking for housing, the ability to secure funding and um, the ability to have access to land, feeling safe and welcome in those spaces, funding to be able to purchase equipment are all huge barriers for farmers to try and uplift their businesses. A lot of people are renting lands and honestly, like that's the same thing as sharecropping and tenant farming. And I understand that, you know, city governments are trying to find ways to increase different um, you know, diverse farming operations and programs, but it's a modern version of tenant farming. It doesn't, you know, produce wealth for these BIPOC farmers in the way that they are allowing themselves to be able to actually grow their business in a sustainable way. You know, at five years, if the city wants to sell that lot to a developer to be able to put in a, uh, an affordable housing unit, they could. And then the thousands of dollars and the hundreds of thousands of hours of time that was spent into planning and volunteering and developing that lot goes away. And uh, really just like understanding that privilege of having generational wealth, especially from a perspective of land from an entire country that is based off of colonization, that is based off of stealing land from indigenous people is at the, the true root of where we see a lot of um, issues around land access and farming in the state of Minnesota. A majority of farms that are owned um, by farmer owner operators that are family owned have been owned by at least two generations within their family. And I understand that there are certain farmers that have a lot of pride around that. You know, you want to be able to pass on your career to your, your children. You want to be able to pass that land on, but you also have to find a way to acknowledge 
the privilege that comes with that and the history that comes with that because in order for you to be able to have that land to pass on to your children there are indigenous people and black people who have either had their land stolen from or have been promised an opportunity to be able to gain equitable access that have been lied to time and time again historically through policy and procedure at every stage of this country's development. And so you see that there are so many ways that are we see housing and food interconnected into the work that we do around justice, around equity, around the fight for Black lives in the Twin Cities. These are just a couple ways that you can get involved. These are more uh, food justice related. I will say, I'll be the first to say, I'm not a total housing justice expert. There are tons of people in the Twin Cities that are absolutely much more versed in uh, policies and other cooperative movements and land trusts that are building momentum around the Twin Cities that you could support. Um, but right now there are a lot of BIPOC farmers that are trying to lift off their operations. They're trying to close on land. They're trying to buy buildings. They're trying to buy processing facilities. There are so many GoFundMes out there that you can support. Uh, BIPOC farm businesses, food businesses, land trust cooperatives, a lot of these are not nonprofits. And while you can't get a tax write-off from it technically, uh, these are places where they're going to include and infuse our economy down the line. These are spaces where I think that it needs our investment, especially because it is even more difficult for a lot of these uh, businesses to be able to get support. Uh, it's not as easy for them to get grant funds or state funds or federal funds a lot of them don't have someone that they can retain for, you know, to write a $10,000 grant or to pay $10,000 to write a $5 million grant. And so uh, our ability to say we are willing to invest our dollars individually and collectively as cooperatives, as businesses, as families is really important to be able to actually realize in a tangible way that we're caring about food justice giving back lands. There's a lot of movements in indigenous communities around giving back land. I believe, I think it was Hennepin County or there's a county in the state of Minnesota that recently gave back land to a tribe. Um, and so we're starting to see that the conversations around giving back land and around the reparations for descendants of slavery really being actualized. And I know Dan had said, I don't know if they're talking about reparations at the Capitol, but there absolutely are people that are fighting for that conversation. And you as people who are Living in the state of Minnesota, you all have representatives that you have either voted into office or who are representing you, whether you voted for them or not. And so calling them and letting them know that this is an important conversation to have can really push the dial and, and make sure that it can be a conversation to continue being had at the legislature. So this work is political. This work has taken the energy and the sweat and tears of black and brown bodies since the genesis of this country. And so making sure that we're not forgetting that we have to get political with this process is absolutely important. So there are so many other ways, but I think I'm going to run over on time or maybe I already have, so I will stop. But if you have any questions, uh, I believe someone's going to be able to drop in one of my contact forms. This is my email, but the easiest way to contact me if you want to connect is through the contact form. So thank you. Thank you, Mia. Um, that was great. And the whole series of presentations have been great. Um, this is the time when we move to the question and answer period. Um, so our, uh, uh, our panelists will be available to answer questions. I don't know if we are, I, I'm still seeing the screen share up. I'm not sure if we're able to have all of the panelists visible now. Um, 
um, uh, sorry, set. I, I think, yeah, I'll ask the, the panelists to, to share their video. Um, I'm going to jump in with the first question that appeared uh, from what uh, uh, people who have viewed the movie sent in beforehand. Um, and I'm going to paraphrase and embellish a bit. Uh, so I hope the person who posed the question uh, is okay with this. But um, I think what the question boils down to is why is Minnesota so bad? And um, what first comes to mind to me is, is a book that, that we've discussed here at the Eastside Freedom Library on more than one occasion by Christopher Lehman, who is a professor at St. Cloud State University called Slavery's Reach. And it uh, details some of the involvement and complicity of Minnesotans in the slave trade. And, and you know, that we think of that form of white supremacy being only in the South, when we know historically there was a lot of slavery in the North, especially in the New England states and in the Yankee states, uh, but also that, that, that this continues. Um, and I, um, you know, so why, why is it so bad? Is it something about the ethnic makeup uh, and the origins of the people who are most in power here? Or is it something else? I don't know if anyone has any ideas about that. Maybe it showed up in the Mapping, mapping Prejudice uh, work or maybe in some of your research, Daniel. Yeah, I, th I think you nailed it, Clarence. And, and um, Professor Lehman's work is, is stunning and chilling and important. Um, and just that idea that Minnesota's roots are so um, tied in with um, with money and resource um, taken out of the bodies of enslaved people, and this is you know counties, this is land development, this is the University of Minnesota. Uh, Chris really breaks it down. It's it's powerful and important, and so I think that is part of it. Our origin story, of course, is about colonization, and so um, Minnesota's got a really a grim history and some really powerful research. Um, that's happening on half-breed script and just the kind of the, the original land grab and just these really insidious um, ways that um, settlers and white robber barons were, were taking land. And we think of treaties and in one fell swoop, indigenous people lost huge swaths of land, but there were other more um, complicated, like with restrictive covenants, more complicated ways um, that land was, was kind of pulled away from indigenous communities. And the half-breed script process of that hustle is, is one of them. And then, you know, I would also just say that, um, that this, the Minnesota paradox is real. And, you know, that idea that even in the forming of the state's constitution in the late 1850s, that you had a pretty robust abolitionist um, community and culture who put forth a constitution that would give African-American men the right to vote. And then you had the business uh, side of Minnesota, largely in St. Paul, um, who were the ones who were friendly and welcoming to slaveholders and that they put forward a different constitution saying, no, that ain't gonna be a part of it. And that tension and duplicity and dichotomy of the Minnesota paradox you know, continues to this day. There has been opportunity, but there's been you know, some of the worst in the nation um, disparities. There, there has been 
progress, but there's been a lot of struggle. Um, but I, I think you do have to look to those, those origin stories, those um, certainly 19th century, but even before that, um, with the fur trade and how race and, and money and land um, you know, come into play. But, but yeah, if, if I had to suggest one read right now, it would be Chris Lehman's book. Thanks. Uh, any other thoughts on that? Or, um, I'll add on briefly, if that's okay. Just that one thing that um, that has really emerged for us through our research is that um, Minneapolis was really trying to frame itself as as a progressive city, as a leader of cities, and and so it was doing it was doing everything. Um, it was it was trying to like really be cutting edge um, and. And at the time when um, when covenants first came into use, this idea of racial segregation was was viewed as progressive and cutting edge, um, which is not to say that it is progressive or cutting edge, but just that um, that that the that the very like um, racist and um, and ideology rooted in eugenics um, really really structured the way people were were thinking about cities um, and that was part of why Minneapolis so wholeheartedly embraced um, embraced segregation and and their planning um, and 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 how that became so deeply embedded here yeah you know I would also just offer in terms of this this theme of food justice that you know Minneapolis as the mill city and the milling capital of the world and around the time that the covenants were being embedded um, is also about um, you know, kind of that taking from the land. And there's a lot of um, really kind of compelling stories of progressive politics in terms of, you know, far tensions between farmers and the industrialists in the city. But, you know, when I think of the indigenous community and I think of land and that, you know, ultimately the wheat growing up on that um, Dakota land and Ojibwe land, you know, kind of driving the mills or being kind of put through the mills that drove the mill city. I think that this through line of food justice and injustice um, and land and appropriation is, is there too. Thanks. Um, I'm gonna go on to the next question uh, that, that came in early um, and I'll, I'll, I'll read it here. Uh, I understand the covenants restricting, restricting groups from neighborhoods was in the interest of realtors, bankers and others in the capitalist system to make money. However, the bigotry of ordinary people in restricted neighborhoods is something else. Uh, how are the churches, educational institutions, business organizations, et cetera, uh, complicit in this type of white supremacy? Yeah, you know, I'll say one thing. I appreciate that question. And one of the things, um, me, I really appreciate about your presentation was, was all the specificity and really um, powerful facts, but also your personal lived experience, uh, you know, is important because um, this is personal. And so while we want to talk about systemic um, racism, we also do want to talk about that idea of uh, interpersonal oppression. And we see that in the Lee House and, a, a, you know, lynch mob of thousands, you know, a couple blocks from where I am now, you know, forming around. That's, that was caused by covenants and these kind of barriers and um, white supremacy. But, but yeah, let, I don't want to like, take the humanity out of the oppression too and let 
people off the hook. So um, that's part of it. But yeah, I think to the question's point, you know, for us, our movement, um, our institutions began in the church in terms of African Americans. So, you know, the church obviously is the seat of the civil rights movement and all of that work. But yeah, all throughout South Minneapolis, churches were complicit, you know, churches that now are seeing that and going through some reconciliation. I think I mentioned, I've been in a half dozen screenings of Jim Crow of the North in church settings where there's a degree of acknowledgement of those individual churches in their neighborhoods. And then this idea of the, those institutions um, writ large being a part of the problem. So, you know, and that's what I love about where Rebecca is kind of showing us the mapping prejudice research is going is that kind of sedentary suppression, you know, that all of these institutions, organizations, places, um, they're all complicit. We're all complicit in this. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with what you said. And it's really interesting because something that was very profound to me in the documentary is a woman explaining how she grew up in the, on the South Side and it was pegged as like this oasis, this beautiful paradise. And, you know, who doesn't want to live in that, you know, where you could feel safe going outside and you play until the sun goes down and your parents call you for dinner. And this, this idea and this reality that there are so many Minnesotans that have this same, you know, rose colored, rose tinted glasses where they're like, well, I never even realized that this is going on. And then there's this polarized experience of, of people who have been othered where they're like, what do you mean? <laughs> this has been my experience from the jump. This has been my grandparents' experience. These are my cousin's experience, my great aunt's experience, and a very different experience of living in Minnesota and just like this insidious nature that so many things that are deemed progressive have come from the very people that colonized this land. And so what does it mean for someone who has contributed very drastically to the demise of our soil quality, to environmental pollution and environmental injustices, um, those who have taken land from indigenous people who have created policies that at the time maybe they thought were progressive, but really did a very large amount of harm to black and brown communities to say, you know, we are progressive. And I think that there is just this common theme that still happens to this day in, in 2021, where we do have a lot of Minnesotans that think that they live in a progressive state. We have a lot of Minnesotans that think, oh, you know, like we voted Trump out of office. And so like, you know, we did our part, you know, pat ourselves on the back but there are so many policies and procedures and, and small little things that add up onto someone's life who have, has a lineage of being systemically oppressed and that's where it matters and that's where it adds up into someone having a very, very different experience and having someone who took a total left turn while you were in paradise. Thanks. Um, Here's a quick question. A, a, a few people have asked this. Uh, what do you do if you find, and I think Rebecca, you started talking about this, but what do you do if you find that there is a restrictive covenant on, on the deed of your house? Um, and I, I guess Dan talked a bit about this too, uh, but but now you can you can remove it. I actually I know nothing about what the process of removing it um, is like, and and Dan, I don't know if you can speak to that at all. 
You know, a little bit. And I know um, Dr. Delagarde uh, in, on your team is, is looking into, um, you know, seeing folks um, through that process um, by way of example, perhaps. Um, but so there is a way to expunge it. I think one of the things that the Map and Prejudice team is trying to work at is is to work with the legislature to remove the cost because it's not insignificant. I think it's like 60 bucks or something. I mean, you know, so for some families that live in Hills, that wouldn't be a problem. But um, but it, what's cool, uh, Clarence, is that a lot of people have expressed that, you know, this idea of exercising it as some way to push back. Of course, the researchers would remind us we don't want to delete this. We don't want to in any way obscure it from the public record um, because that's the power of mapping prejudices. You cannot deny this anymore. There it is in black and white. Um, but I, I love that idea. I, I love even some of my friends in the community, some of the artists, you know, some of the um, arts activism swirling around like Pillsbury House Theater, talking about, you know, lawn signs with the covenants, you know, where folks can put something in their window, like, you know, this house has it or the words of the covenant, you know, just by way of making it like the, the bronze, the Setu Jones kind of marker to at the Lee House, you know, ways to mark those covenants um, to, to call it out, I think is important to continue to um, drag it kind of out of the shadows and into the light. Um, and maybe that could go in the reverse too is, you know, and those of us in or near um, redlined districts, you know, maybe having the same kind of way to call that out um, and how we thrived in spite of, you know, some of that oppression. But, but I'm sure um, Mapping Prejudice probably has info if you went to their webpage uh, on how to take those steps um, and to expunge the, uh, the restrictive covenant from your deed. Um, great, thanks. Um, there, there was another question that was submitted um, talking about the freeways and the freeway system. And I noticed looking at the map that you posted and, and seeing the maps in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the film, um, you know, they seem to go, the freeways seem to go pretty close to those red areas, um, you know, or right through those red areas. I mean, there's a lot of history uh, here in St. Paul about the Rondo neighborhood and how the freeway went directly through there. Um, people don't talk as much about 35W uh, so maybe you can talk about that and maybe, you know, that history in other parts of the country. And, and, and this viewer also asks about the Fair Housing Act of 1968. Um, has that been fully realized or how long did it take to, for that to have an impact? Is it fully realized? And, um, you know, is that still a good vehicle to uh, pursuing justice? Yeah, Rebecca, I'll be interested to hear you and Mia's take on this. I will say to the last part first, you know, the Fair Housing Act is just that, you know, it's just a piece of legislation and it can be undone as we're seeing with Voting Rights Act. I mean, so that we, we have to, I think sometimes we kind of deify some of the, the civil, war, civil rights um, legislation like it's carved in stone and it isn't. And so um, it, you give uh, the market an inch and they'll take a mile and we would lose a lot of those. And we already have in different ways, it's about enforcement. And so, you know, HUD are kind of the guardians of the Fair Housing Act. And I did a Jim Crow the North screening at the HUD offices and a lot of their, especially younger, um, you know, staff 
didn't know any of this history. That was why their bosses dragged me in and said they need to see this. We are this is our job. Um, so, it, but you know, it did largely kind of root out and make illegal a lot of the practices after a series of court cases. But you know, obviously, as we all know, the damage was done to a large degree. Um, but the other part of that is real estate, banking, insurance, those other facets of the kind of housing economy are, are still rife with it. You know, people getting steered um, by real estate agents. The cool thing I will say, and I am sometimes the hope guy, is that like in some of our Jim Crow the North screenings, um, there we've had um, realtors who talk about their role in you know the problem, but also the solution. And of course, um, Clarence, that's what's been really dope about uh, the movement um, in St. Paul that you all are a part of is seeing ABC Realty and just really this commitment from realtors to try and be a part of the solution. Um, but freeways, yeah, it's every, in every black community. This is a national thing. Right on Rondo, I'd be, uh, you know, that that's the one we know, but yes, 35W devastated the South side. Um, the North side was affected by, you know, not only freeways, but other infrastructure that carved up, you know, it's funny, it's ironic, I guess, that the, the farmer's market is in a place adjacent to what used to be one of the old North side communities, um, more proximal to downtown. But, but so you can, you talk to an elder on the South side, they'll mention, Central High, losing Central High and the freeways and, and it's real. But Rebecca, I'm curious about um, one of the things I've been anxious about with the Ramsey County research with mapping prejudices. So we know about Rondo's destruction, but you know, like to what degree did covenants create the green line and leaving that as the red line perhaps? And then that's was part of the justification for the ultimate destruction. Are you are you all starting to see some of that? Um, yeah, I, I think that some of that is starting to emerge. And I think that um, that's definitely part of the, the pattern that we see in Minneapolis. Um, and so uh, I'll, I'll be curious to see the answer to that question too, um, as that map comes together. Um, I, I, I think that the question about, about highways is so important for, for thinking about, um, for thinking about access to food and, and just like how, how highways cut neighborhoods in half and really created barriers. Um, I know I know through some of the research that people have done on the history of 35W, people have talked about um, how, how uh, the neighborhoods to the west of, of 35W really policed uh, people of color coming across that barrier once it was erected um, and thinking about the way that, um, that 95 also, or 94 cuts off, um, cuts off communities from the south side from downtown. Um, and how that shaped who has access to what food um, and, and also the environments. Um, highways are obviously a huge source of pollution. Um, and so putting a freeway through a neighborhood uh, can have devastating effects on environmental quality um, or, or your access to the riverfront if you're in the north side. Um, and so I think that that's really important to think about um, and the way that covenants shaped what neighborhoods were not deemed valuable and, and then this idea, this like science evaluation, which of course is a completely arbitrary thing, um, was used to justify the destruction of communities of color through highway development. Um, and yeah, uh, Maya, I don't know if you have anything you want to add. I would love to hear your thoughts on it too. Yeah, I don't have anything to add particularly on highways, but something that I do want to note that maybe not everybody knows about intricately that pertains to housing is that it's not just about like HUD or FHA or lenders 
um, around discrimination. It's so much deeper because there are so many hands that touch your documents that so many people and <laughs> different roles that you have to interface with to even mm -hmm. get to the point of buying a house. Uh, even I'm the, I'm trying to buy, I'm a renter, I'm trying to buy a house and it's, it's ridiculous how many loops. So you can have one person that can spin everything up. Um, and it kind of goes back to the slide that I had around discriminatory lending. You know, you could have a, a lender that could, um, you know, put your deal wrong. Even like the fact that when people are putting in offers for your house, technically speaking, you know, there's nobody standing over your shoulder telling you, oh, you know, you can't deny that person. Oh, you can't deny that person. You can sift through soft offers as you want. I know there are a lot of people who have mentioned that, you know, they've been passed up, even for like young people who are trying to buy houses right now, I'm being passed up by people who can pay the full price. Um, FHA loans are generally viewed as lesser than, than conventional loans because FHA loans require stricter requirements. And so if the paint is chipping and the windows are too old, and if your foundation is settling or it's got a crack and the person that comes out and does the inspection doesn't approve you, you're not going to get that loan. Um, but somebody that goes through a conventional lender that doesn't have the, the strict requirements is more apt to get that loan. So you're placed at a dis disadvantage. Um, it's a seller's market right now. And so people are paying above market price. And for people who have access to generational wealth, people who have higher paying jobs, people who have parents that can help them put a down payment on their house, um, people who don't have student loan debt, uh, people who have like white passing and white privilege that can walk through and potentially, you know, be able to secure a deal more quickly than someone who has darker skin. Like those are all like very real advantages that are very, very hard to prove in an aggregate sense on a federal level because these are individual experiences that oftentimes are discounted because black and brown people are constantly gaslit into making us believe that we just had a one-off experience that it's not a pattern. And even from a lending perspective, you know, my mom, when she's going through and trying to process loans, you know, she asks people their racial demographic information, but even our own data has been used against us. So some BIPOC people don't want to disclose their, their, you know, demographic information because they feel like it might be used against them. And then even when it is disclosed, when there are people that are trying to open up cases um, at a federal level and a national level, or even a state level around lender discrimination and bank discrimination, most of the times they fight tooth and nail to not disclose racial demographic information that is tied to the applicant because if they did, they know that people would see overarching patterns around why they're getting denied. And so you have this ice age old federal legislation that literally doesn't do anything because people are so keen on finding ways to discourage and discount the experiences people and also creating systems that are very arduous so that people can't actually prove it and actually change policy on a federal level to make sure that discrimination doesn't actually happen. So we've done dozens of Jim Crow in our screens and discussions. This has never come up to that powerful uh, and specific of recounting. Thank you so much, uh, Maya. I mean, that's powerful. And that is all 
not about, you know, frankly, restrictive covenants in history. That's kind of lived experience every day. And, and those are systems that are harder uh, to change. They're individuals. Um, so thank you. Also, you mentioned renters, because that is a huge omission, it, obviously, in, in our history. And, and Kirsten Delegard and I at all these screenings often kind of feel that absence that we're, we didn't address in, in the work, renters. And so for a lot of people, that's, mm -hmm. that's really front and center. So thank you. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Even, I mean, like even, uh, you know, landlords saying, oh, you can't have aggressive breeds. You can't have pit bulls. Honestly, for me, like that's a for another form of a racial covenant, because if you look at people who have pit bulls who are nine times out of 10, not vicious, not, you know, out here attacking and people are using racial stereotypes and caricatures of people using them to fight other dogs or having little chicken rings in there. I don't know what they're thinking about, but it's not true. And that is a, a type of a racial covenant that is used to push people out because there's nothing that they can do about it. Yeah, we only have a couple of minutes left. Um, uh, yeah, thanks for adding that to the conversation uh, and that those practices are historical. I know my mom talking about my grandfather buying his house, that he had to go to the grocery store down the street and get a loan from the grocer at a very high rate and pay a lot more for his house than a white person would have to. Um, I don't know, uh, Eddie, if we can do one quick question before we go, or do we need to, I know there've been a lot of really good questions that we just can't get to, uh, and I'm sorry for that, uh, but we have, some of them have been answered by the way. Um, uh, I'll let you captain this for the moment. Um, no, we don't. We only have two minutes left. Could it be like a quick question? Because we only have like about two minutes left. Um, well, uh, here's a quick one that you can just say, uh, maybe someone hasn't answered this. Uh, one viewer's uh, asking, are there are communities like that of Columbia, Maryland, 1967 between DC and Baltimore, which was created as an integrated community that pushed against the redlining and segregation. Was there anything like that in, in the Twin Cities that, that any of you know of? What was the question again, uh, resisting? Um, because resistance has always been a part of the story. Well, resisting by intentionally creating an integrated neighborhood yeah, I mean, in the film, we learn about, you know, the Tilson built homes is one example of some effort to use kind of market and government sanctioning to make create open housing, as it was referred to, where African Americans would actually be allowed to buy on the open market. Um, you know, and so that's important, but I also love the stories of folks who cross the line and, uh, you know, again, you talk to elders and you'll hear about how they just made it happen and just imagine the courage of knowing that, you know, you're going up against that. And frankly, if some of the folks, some of the white folks who defied the covenants and said, I'm selling anyway, much to their realtor's chagrin, those stories are there too. But um, yeah, and I think that's important for us to find ways to surface how we broke through um, some of these systems. Mm -hmm. Thank you. All right. <laughs> uh, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, we are grateful to Daniel, uh, Rebecca, and Mia for their time and expertise. And thank you to the Eastside Freedom Library and Clarence Wright for moderating this evening. If you'd like to join us donating to the Eastside Freedom Library and Mapping Prejudice, 
please visit our website and the links are available in the chat box. And on behalf of the Twin Cities Food Co-ops, we would like to invite you for our next community conversations event in June, where we will celebrate Juneteenth and explore the, explore the role co-ops played in the movement for racial justice and abolition. We'll look at the intersection of art and social justice movement with a conversation with Save the Board to memorialize the movement, a group dedicated to preserving the mural art that was created as a response to the killing of George Floyd and social uprising last spring. So keep an eye on that on your co-ops website over the coming months for more details about the event. And again, thank you all to the panelists for joining us today. Um, great discussion. And I hope everyone has a great night.